Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm talking to game-changing leaders in and around the oil and gas industry because I'm working on my next book, and I want their insights on how companies can translate decarbonization aspiration into action. And today, I had a really special conversation with Environmental Defense Fund's Mark Brownstein. He's the Senior Vice President of the Energy Program. Before he joined EDF in 2006, Mark received his law degree from the University of Michigan. He's served as an air quality regulator and adjunct professor at both NYU's law school and Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. You can learn more about Mark's impressive biography in our show notes. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Brownstein. Well, Mark Bronstein, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Tisha, it's always good to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. So here we are in the world where there is so much going on in the climate space and the reducing greenhouse gas emissions space, and yet EDF and I'll mention the International Energy Agency are very focused on methane. Can you help set up for our audience why methane is so important and why immediate action on methane is a priority for you and for the Environmental Defense Fund? Sure. Well, it really comes down to this, right? Methane from human activities drive more than a quarter of the warming that our planet is experiencing right now. And we all are seeing you know, the increased impacts from climate change, right? The floods, uh, the droughts in many parts of the world, increased wildfires. There's a UN report that's just out this week, which talks about the planet being in a wildfire crisis due to rising temperatures. So the simple fact is, is that methane from human activities is driving a lot of that warming in the near term. And that's, so that's the bad news, right? The good news is is that there are many things that we can do to reduce those methane emissions now that would appreciably lower temperature in the near term, even while we do the necessary steps to decarbonize our economy. So there are things that we can do today uh, to slow warming by reducing methane emissions. It makes a lot of sense. And you you mentioned in particular human activity opportunities to reduce methane emissions. And I've had two of the CEOs I've interviewed on this podcast in the last few months mention EDF as an influential partner in getting them to change the way they're engaging on reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, which is quite remarkable and a huge, just a, a remarkable compliment to your huge influence. Can you talk to our audience about When you work with oil and gas companies, what do you think the qualities those leaders possess who are engaging in a very constructive and meaningful way with EDF, with reducing their own emissions? Well, Tisha, maybe it's it's useful to take a to take one step back because I said, you know, methane emissions from human activities. So what does Mm -hmm. that mean? Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what that means essentially is is human activities means agriculture, Mm -hmm. oil, gas and coal and landfills, right? Those are the, the, those are the major buckets of human activity. And what we know from the work that we've been doing over the last decade is, is that the lion's share of the most immediate and cost-effective opportunities to reduce these methane emissions are actually in the oil and gas space. Mm-hmm. The oil and gas industry is responsible for somewhere on the order of uh, you know, a third of these man-made emissions that are driving warming in the near term. And so that is 
uh, a large reason why we've spent so much time trying to engage the oil and gas industry on this issue, because they're a big contributor. And yet what we also know from our work over the last 10 years is, is that we can get over a 70% reduction in oil and gas methane emissions with technologies that are available to the industry today. That's our assessment, but that's also the assessment of the International Energy Agency. And so it's a it's just a huge opportunity. So then, you know, what we have been looking for in the industry are those companies that, you know, understand that this is a, a challenge, you know, a challenge to their, uh, you know, to their business model, but also an opportunity. Because, you know, there's so many places where the oil and gas industry, where where the public is skeptical that the oil and gas industry wants to be a constructive partner in battling climate change or can be a constructive partner in battling climate change. You know, our view and the message that we bring to the industry is, is if you want to be taken seriously, you, you, you have to be willing to tackle, you know, it, this 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 issue. Right. If you if, if you can't do the easy stuff reducing methane emissions, then how is the public going to trust that you're really prepared to engage on the harder stuff, you know, around decarbonization? So, um, you know, first and foremost, we're looking for companies that get that, mm. that, that get that simple logic, that this is really an opportunity for them to demonstrate that they are constructively engaged in addressing climate change. Well, and we used to, um, I used to hear engaging with companies that this was not an economically uh, viable approach to, you know, reducing leaks just did not pay for itself. But that just simply hasn't borne out. Companies are quite enthusiastic, actually, about the revenue response, the the opportunity to make money from reducing their methane emissions. Um, and, and so that's been really interesting. I, I also really encourage companies to be industry leaders, to bring a certain kind of raising the bar expectation to peer companies. And that that is, in fact, a key component of leadership. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, can you give an example of a success story from your perspective and EDF's perspective of what constructive engagement with an oil and gas company looks like? Well, I think it goes back to the very early days when we first started looking at the climate science and realized that methane was a much bigger issue than anyone thought. You know, we first went to the oil and gas industry with with our understanding of the science, and almost uniformly, the response we got back is, "Is well, surely the the industry is not a big source of these emissions." And what you often hear when you talk to companies is, "Is you know, you know, methane, natural gas, is our product, right? Why on earth would we allow processes to leak and emit methane? You know, we're, we that would be throwing our product away." But of course, what we've learned from actually what we learned from those conversations is that very few companies, in fact, no companies actually went out and did any kind of in the field monitoring, that all of the data that they have been reporting to themselves and to the government have been uh, the consequence of uh, engineering calculations, estimates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we were challenging them and, you know, and again, we have to, you know, sort of understand that most oil and gas companies are run by engineers. And if you can say one thing about engineers, right, they they're motivated by data. They understand data, right? They understand numbers. And so the simple challenge to them was, is, well, look, in fact, you're making estimates of what you think emissions are, but you haven't done any real field work gone out into the field to measure emissions. We think emissions are actually higher than what you're reporting with your estimates, but rather than have an argument about who's right and who's wrong, let's just go out into the field and get better data. And in fact, you know, the earliest work that we did was through the University of Texas, uh, you know, in Austin, uh, Dr. David Allen, where we actually went out and did field studies. And the significant thing about these field studies were is, is that these were done with 
you know, full scientific protocol. The, the, the process that we used to measure emissions was peer reviewed by a science panel. Uh, the interpretation of the results we got were peer reviewed, and ultimately the results were published in a science journal. And what that study showed and the subsequent 16 other studies that we did showed is that, in fact, emissions coming from the U.S. oil and gas industry were about 60, 60 percent higher than what the industry was reporting to the U.S. EPA through its estimates, that, in fact, the estimates were low, significantly low. What was rewarding about that was is that you had a core group of companies, Shell, BP, Exxon, uh, Chevron, who are, were willing to go out and subject themselves to, you know, scientifically rigorous study. And what was rewarding is, is that many of the companies that participated in those studies then started to do their own field measurements and started to take action on their emissions based on the data that we had collected and that they were subsequently collecting through their own data efforts. And I don't want to pretend for a minute that, you know, the problem is solved. Right. But it does show the value of, you know, getting away from the rhetoric and the he said, she said, who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad. And really just, you know, focusing right in on what is the data telling us and being responsive to that data. So there's a lot of work yet to still do on this issue, for sure, even amongst the companies I just mentioned. Right. But I do think that part of what we've been able to do over the last 10 years is not only establish the fact that there really is an issue here, but also establish the fact that better data can lead to real problem solving, you know, beyond sort of the, you know, the rhetoric of the of the moment. Yeah, and you, you kick us off on a trajectory that it's hard to remember how novel and scary it was for companies to engage in emissions measurement studies with EDF at a time when, when most of the industry was saying we don't have a, a problem. But that did kick off a, a trajectory that we're on now where there is so there are so many options to with technology development and with increasing numbers of vendors and service companies providing measurement data. And I think we really see this movement towards actual measurement emissions and reconciliation with these estimates um, that you were mentioning. Can you tell us a little bit, and EDF is in the middle of all of this development, and you are going to have your own methane satellite, and you are working on numerous collaborations to further the our understanding of our emissions so that we can focus on reducing them. What do you think is coming next? What do you see changing with technology, innovation, and new processes? Well, you highlight two, two things there with that question. I want to want to dwell on for a second. The first is, is that, you know, early on, we also recognized that, you know, getting better data was the key to, you know, solving the problem, right? Part of what we needed to do was to get these measurement techniques sort of out of the lab, right? <laughs> out mm-hmm. of the world of academia and really into a commercial setting. So uh, in parallel to some of our mission studies, we early on worked again with a number of companies to, to, to road test, if you will, uh, a variety of different remote sensing technologies, right? Whether whether you're talking about you know fixed monitors at fence lines, or you're talking about sensors attached to aircraft or drones, or even you know or, or even vehicles driving around a, a you know a complex facility, right? There's any number of techniques that we experimented with that contributed to our science studies, but now have become part of what I'll call the growing commercial industry to provide monitoring and measurement 
to industry. Mm-hmm. And so this has opened up a whole new world, which I think you know gives us greater confidence to really push industry towards a world in which we're moving away from relying on engineering estimates to a world in which we are now more or less expecting that when companies report emissions, whether to investors or to government regulators or to their own shareholders, right? That that it's based on actual field data. So that's one big change that I think has taken place. The other, of course, is is the fact that this technology, you know, as like with all technologies, are increasingly available to everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, we carry more computing power in our back pocket with our iPhones than the entire Apollo you know, moon mission had with all of the supercomputers available to the U.S. at that time. Right. So technology has been revolutionized. And, it, you know, it sits in our pocket. Well, in the same way, right, Environmental Defense Fund is an environmental NGO, now has the ability to build and launch a satellite that will enable us to, on a regular basis, assess emissions for more than 80% of global oil and gas operations. And the technology exists to not only collect that data, but make it widely available, which is what we're committed to do, make it available to industry, to regulators, uh, to investors, and frankly, to civil society. Mm-hmm. And so I think a number of companies now sort of understand, and you know, Mike Worth, a, a few years ago, you know, CEO of Chevron talked about the fact that you know, satellites are coming and, and the industry can't hide from this issue. And I think that he's right. And I think it's part of the reason why you're seeing so many companies not just in the United States, but globally, begin to engage around this issue because they realize that, you know, one way or another, people are going to know what emissions are. And I think the forward-thinking companies want to make sure that as that data becomes available, they can tell a good story about how their facilities are performing relative to peers. So, you know, I think that that is that 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 is that is a fundamental change. I think in in you know how um, this issue has been you know managed. That level of visibility and ultimately transparency to civil society is certainly uh, disruptive to the to the way uh, companies have thought about addressing their emissions in the past. Let me just take us on a quick tangent, because as you painted this picture of satellite uh, measuring methane emissions around the world, of course, there's always a keen interest in other sources of emission. And you mentioned them, the human caused ones around uh, landfills, coal mines, um, two part Tangent. One, does EDF engage with those other industries as well? And two, do you think there's this all this technology that the oil and gas industry is using? Is there opportunity for NGOs like EDF to take that show on the road and help other industries fast track addressing their methane? Or is there not really connectivity between between our progress and the progress of other industries? No, I, I definitely think. That I, so first of all, right, to be clear, right. You know, the goal is to reduce methane emissions from across all human activities, right? It isn't that, you know, methane emissions from the oil and gas industry is any better or worse than the methane emissions coming from agriculture or from landfills. But what is true is, is that, you know, there are many more opportunities to make significant reductions in the oil and gas industry than in some of these other sectors. So, you know, a rational approach to this problem is, is, you know, you do the, you know, you do the biggest bang for the buck first and then work the problem from there. And in fact, Environmental Defense Fund is now, you know, gearing up to take a really hard look at, you know, emissions from agriculture, you know, the, uh, um, yeah, which is largely, uh, which is, you know, um, and we've done some early work on, um, 
on how to reduce methane emissions from rice farming. We've done some early work on how to reduce emissions from the raising of beef cattle and dairy cattle. I mean, there are things that can be done in those sectors. They're harder to bring to scale than in the oil and gas industry, right? And the way to think about it is this, you have an initiative uh, called the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is 12 of the world's largest oil and gas companies. They have all committed uh, to reduce methane emissions significantly. They, those 12 companies by themselves represent over a third of global oil and gas production, right? So there's a, there's a level of concentration in the oil and gas industry that isn't replicated in, you know, in rice farming or in, mm-hmm. uh, or, or in dairy operations or cattle operations, right? Which is another reason why you focus on oil and gas first. <laughs> But clearly, we and others are, are, are looking at that. And in fact, some of the technologies that we've developed in an effort to get a handle on oil and gas can be helpful in, in, in these other things. So, for example, the satellite that we're working on now, its primary mission is to focus on emissions from the oil and gas industry. But we will be ultimately collecting data that will enable us and others to see emissions from you know, large landfills around the world and will enable us to see emissions from large uh, animal feeding operations around the world. And that this will provide information that hopefully will be relevant uh, to solving uh, those problems. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast, but are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. Well, it's no secret to our listeners that I have perpetually rose colored glasses on and I Love the idea of envisioning a world where we're collaborating, not just across companies and with the NGOs, but across industries to accelerate the reduction of methane emissions. And so in that spirit, I want to get your two cents about the global methane pledge where 100 countries came together to agree to cut emissions 30 percent by 2030. What do you think about this? Meaningful BS? What's going like what's going to happen next in the, with the global methane pledge? Well, uh, you know, the global methane pledge is over 100 com- countries now and 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 I think those hundred, those over 100 countries represent something like 70% of global GDP. So it's 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 pretty significant. And I think it's significant in part because up until this point the global climate conversation was largely focused on reducing carbon dioxide emissions largely associated with the production and use of fossil fuels. And look, there's no question about the fact that we cannot solve the climate challenge. We cannot address the climate crisis without reducing CO2 emissions. But what we also understand is is that we can't solve the climate crisis only by solving for CO2, that we have to address methane alongside of this. This was the conclusion of a of a science study that came out of the United Nations earlier this year, or earlier last year, I should say. Mm-hmm. And the Global Methane Pledge, in large respect, response was, was a response to that UN science report, right? It was saying essentially, hey, wait a minute, we need a strategy for addressing methane alongside all of the work that we're doing to decarbonize the economy. We need to do both. So the Global Methane Pledge, I think, is really important because it, recogn- it, it represents now putting methane on the same stage and saying, we need to do this and that if we're going to solve the climate crisis. Now, you know, pledges are only as good as the action that follows. 
And, you know, Greta Thunberg, you know, came to, you know, COP26 in Glasgow and, you know, she was famously quoted as saying, you know, blah, 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 right? I hear lots of words, but show me the action. Mm -hmm. Well, that's ultimately true for the Global Methane Pledge, right? So it's a great ambition, okay? But what, what's required now are concrete steps that countries are taking to implement that pledge. So, for example, the United States, which is the world's largest oil and gas producer, is right now working to implement really a significant new regulation that would um, reduce uh, methane emissions from both new and existing oil and gas operations across the country. That's an example of the kind of action that's required to turn the global methane pledge into something that really means something. Same thing, Europe has proposed a set of regulations that affect its oil and gas industry, much smaller than the US, but still important. And in fact, we even saw China, who, who hasn't signed the Global Methane Pledge, but China essentially talked specifically about addressing methane in its new five-year plan, which is kind of like you know their you know their roadmap for economic and social development. So you know we're we're beginning to see the major nations, you know, the major powers of the world, you know, uh, begin to embrace this issue. But of course, it's in the doing, not just the the talking that matters. Well, and I think things like the UN study focused on methane and then the Global Methane Pledge actually make it easier for companies that might be a little slower to this work to recognize its importance because now they're part of a global community that's focused on the same issue. So there's some some subtle um, cover that it provides. Um, and I, well, maybe cover is the wrong word. It's actually just global peer pressure to get to get moving on this work, which I, I find um, I find it much easier. It's it's inevitable to talk about reducing methane emissions now anywhere you are in the oil and gas industry. So did you want to respond to that, Mark? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll say, you know, something else that happened about a year or two ago that was really significant was is that, um, you know, the large French energy company, Engie, right, ended up canceling an LNG supply contract with a supplier out of the Permian Basin precisely because of concerns about emissions, methane emissions in the Permian Basin, right? And it wasn't just concerns, it was da- it was actual data that we had collected and published on a site called permianmap.org. You can go take a look at it, permianmap.org, right? which is essentially a, 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 you know, a report out on emissions coming from the Permian Basin. There's way too much you know, venting and flaring of natural gas in the Permian Basin right now, which is methane emissions in the atmosphere. So, You know, the fact that the United States now is moving towards regulating this is as much about preserving, you know, commercial opportunities for our gas in parts of the world where methane emissions matter to consumers as it is, you know, being responsible in terms of, you know, production here at home. It it really is is both of these things. And I think increasingly, you know, you're going to see consumer pressure that's going to build. People want to know that if they have to use natural gas, if they're going to use natural gas, that it's being produced cleanly. And I think that that, you know, is important. That's such a good point. And we see up and down the supply chain from the producer through midstream to the gas utility or gas exporter, an expectation that there will be total transparency around methane emissions reductions in the in the coming years yep. and a desire to have a consistent way to measure, to build trust with stakeholders, with communities. And, and to your point, 
with buyers, uh, whether they're consumers in the U.S. or for ultimately for European imports. So that that really is a great point. Europe, Asia as um, well. You know, Asia as well. I mean, oh, you know, point. Japan, South Korea, even 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 China, right? I mean, you know, in China, you know, there's there's quite an emphasis on trying to move away from coal, particularly in urban areas, because of the air pollution issues, as much as you know any climate concern. But you know, in some of the conversations that we've had with, you know, stakeholders in in China, you know, we understand that um, as they move from coal to gas, you know, I think they want to make sure that they're getting the full climate benefit that comes along with that move. Mm-hmm. And that's really going to be hard to do if there isn't attention paid to the methane footprint associated with the gas that they'll be purchasing. So pivoting to a little bit of a different topic, a common theme with the uh, the oil and gas sector leaders I talk to right now is how difficult it is to attract or retain talent in this market. I'm curious, and a big thing that we talk about a lot at Adam and Teen and on the podcast is the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in, in this both attracting and retaining and, and um, helping our talent reach their full potential. EDF is growing extraordinarily. At least your influence is growing. You can tell me if your if your workforce is growing. Do you do you all struggle to hire? And are there things that you're doing to attract and retain talent and have a, a diverse workforce as well? Well, so first of all, you know, I I I, I see this as a real topic conversation within the industry. This past November, I was at the ADAPAC conference, which is you know sponsored by ADNOC, the National Oil Company of the Emirates. And it was really quite remarkable that, you know, probably, you know, of the top two or three things on that conference agenda was, you know, attracting or retaining talent. But one of the things that you notice about or that you see instantly when you go to a conference like that, and, you know, this attracts, you know, 100 or 200,000 people from around the world is how incredibly uh, diverse uh, the industry is outside of the United States. You know, uh, these national oil companies are run by, you know, the people who live in those countries, you know, and many of these are, you know, uh, you know, and these are Middle Eastern countries, these are African countries, these are Asian countries, right? So the industry as a whole is a lot more diverse than, you know, one would e- expect if you just looked at what was going on here in the United States. So to some extent, the diversity issue is, is a, you know, is a U.S. challenge, you know, rather than a global challenge. And, and, and so in answer to your question, environmental Environmental Defense Fund is increasingly, you know, becoming a global organization. You know, we now we've had an office in China for 30 plus years. We're recently now established a a, a new office in India. Uh, We have an office in Europe. Our staff is diversifying as we become more global in our operations and our scope. And so, and and clearly there are things that we're doing to be conscious about that. So for example, we are making a much greater effort to recruit uh, new talent from a wider diversity of educational institutions mm-hmm. than we historically did in the past. And we are looking to make sure that we are, you know, considering a wider range of, you know, backgrounds and experiences when we define what we're looking for in any particular position. Personally, in in, in my program, the Energy Transition Program, for example, uh, like, you know, everyone going forward needs to be multilingual. That's just a standard now criteria for who we hire. Because after all, right, the oil and gas industry, the energy industry generally is a global industry. Mm-hmm. So we need to be prepared with the skills, um, technical skills, language skills that allow us to interact 
uh, you know, uh, globally and authentically. So that's how we're approaching it. Oh, that's so interesting. And, so, and such an interesting perspective as EDF becomes more global. And w- one of the things that I've observed is very helpful in recruiting and retaining talent is the focus on innovation, is oil and gas companies thinking about meaningful transformative investments in decarbonization. So I'd love to get your take on hydrogen and what you think. Are you a, are you optimistic about the role of hydrogen in decarbonizing the energy future? And I imagine that you have some concerns as well. And I'd love to just get your, your high level take on what's coming with hydrogen. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, hydrogen is going through a period of, uh, you know, it's having its sort of hype moment. <laughs> if you remember the early mm-hmm. days of the, if it, you know, if you remember the early days of the, of the internet bubble, there was that, you know, there was that sock puppet, you know, for the, you know, uh, pets.com. So hydrogen's having a little bit of a sock puppet moment here in the sense that everyone is is talking about it. But but I think the reality of hydrogen um, is a little different than some of the hype. So the reality of hydrogen is, is that, I, I, you know, I think that it can play a role in decarbonizing our economy. I think there's real promise there for, uh, you know, particularly in heavy industry or, you know, when you talk about alternatives to um, to fossil fuels for shipping and aviation, for example. So very much hydrogen, I think, can play a role in hard to abate sectors for sure. But, you know, two things, right? First of all, it matters where the hydrogen comes from. And towards that end, you know, I'm much more interested in, you know, uh, seeing hydrogen coming from, you know, renewable energy sources, you know, electrolysis of water than, you know, the, the, um, the synthesizing of hydrogen from, you know, natural gas. I, I think the degree to which the synthesizing of hydrogen from natural gas, what people often call blue hydrogen, I think the degree to which that, you know, can play a role in a decarbonized world has a lot to do with, again, abating methane emissions, but also you know, carbon capture and storage of the, the CO2 that's that's liberated. For green hydrogen, it is, you know, it, it is largely about cost, but it's also about water supply. So, it, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there, you know, there's some trade-offs there as well. But then, you know, additionally, right, we need to be really mindful of the fact that while hydrogen is not itself a greenhouse gas, when hydrogen um, goes missing in the atmosphere, when it's vented or leaked, it actually works to exacerbate warming associated with other chemicals. So it, it prolongs the life of methane in the atmosphere, for example. It contributes to the form, formation of water vapor. It contributes to the formation of tropospheric ozone, which is a warming agent. So hydrogen itself is not a warming agent in the same way that CO2 is, but, but its effect in the atmosphere means that it, it accelerates warming in the near term. And so as with methane, right, whatever we do with hydrogen, we need to be really mindful of keeping it in the pipe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the challenge with hydrogen is it's it's a smaller molecule than than, than methane. So, okay, so, you know, we started this conversation by saying, listen, we currently have a challenge keeping methane in the pipe and we're working on that. Well, hydrogen is that much harder because it's smaller, Mm -hmm. it's more slippery. And so this is an area that I think really needs to be addressed as we look at the potential for hydrogen. Okay. We need to make sure that we are doing a good job of monitoring hydrogen as it goes from production and transport to use. We need to make sure that we're engineering systems so that the molecule stays where it's supposed to and doesn't escape into the atmosphere. And that may also mean that there are certain limitations on where and when we can use hydrogen. So for example, shipping it around the world may not be 
a very feasible thing to do once you take into consideration the fact that leakage um, may be uh, endemic. You may want to develop strategies where the hydrogen is produced and used locally. So, so all by way of saying, like, yes, you know, definitely mm-hmm. a tool in toolbox. Yes, there's some potential here, but let's not pretend that it's a silver bullet or that it's fairy dust or that it's a magic wand. Okay, let's let's let let's keep our focus on the science and and act consistent with what we know about science and engineering. It's so important to have these conversations because your comments remind us one how complex the energy system is and how bespoke solutions will have to be. Um, but I, I also think it it to me it reinforces this idea of how the industry is thinking about the transition in its complexity, but also getting its house in order today with methane. Like that's that's just an essential trust building operation. Um, before you start talking about moving hydrogen around, you have to have the public's confidence that we're moving natural gas around uh, without without leaking um, and and with a lot of monitoring and transparency. Yeah, if you get, I mean, if you can't if you can't handle the methane issue, you're definitely not going to be able to handle the hydrogen, <laughs> right. Issue, right? right? And again, this is this this is quite apart from anything having to do with safety, right? Right. This is right. everything. To, this has to do this has to do with whether or not you're getting the climate benefits that you think you're you're getting when you move to this new new gas. Okay, so if you can't control methane and its impact on the atmosphere, you're definitely not going to be able to control hydrogen and its impact on the on the atmosphere. So show me you can do it with with methane and then let's take the next step and see what we can do about hydrogen. So I'm going to return to a question I asked you at the beginning, because I think it might be a nice way to to wrap up this this wide ranging conversation we've had about about the industry. You've gotten to work with many oil and gas leaders around the world. And this podcast is aimed at leaders who want to be transformative contributors to the energy transition. What do you think the qualities of those leaders are in terms of how they engage in these conversations and this work? I'd say the qualities of leaders, the ones I most enjoy working with and the ones I think are most effective are the ones who are intellectually curious, intellectually honest with themselves, with their peers, with stakeholders, and apply the same level of rigor to environmental performance that they do to financial performance, right? There's no successful oil and gas company that survives you know, very long on the simple promise of profitability or the simple mm-hmm. promise of return on capital, right? At the end of the day, there's a financial report that comes out quarterly or annually, and they live and die by the numbers. And what we're saying with methane, and what we're ultimately saying with hydrogen as well, is, okay, that same level of rigor that you bring to financial performance, we want to see for uh, for for environmental performance. Don't, don't give me estimates. Show me the data. Mm, um, that's great. Yeah. Final question. I'd like to make a little bit personal, Mark. You're one of the hardest working people in this space. You have been for years. I won't say decades, but that might in fact be true. (laughs) Um, Can you (laughs) can you talk about what moves you? to keep doing this, this hard, contentious, incremental work. What, what, what drives you to do this? Uh, you're going to, you're now you're going to get me all emotional. Really. It's, it's, it, it's my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the, I'm the proud parent of two 20 somethings and I'm very cognizant as now, as I begin to get a little older about, you know, uh, what kind of, you know, world living I'm leaving for them. Uh, and of course, it, it, to me, it's a little heartbreaking because when I do have conversations with my kids, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of cynicism 
that I get from them about uh, the condition of the world and what exactly is being left to them. You know, I grew up in a time in the United States of, you know, putting men on the moon, right? Mm -hmm. And anything and everything was possible. And I really believed that, you know, better and better days were ahead. I think, I think a lot of kids today don't feel that. And I think that's true in the United States. I think that's true in a lot of other parts of the world. And I think, I think the, the climate crisis has a lot to do with that. So part of the reason why I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing is, is I really feel an obligation to try to do what I can to, in fact, give them a world that is going to be better than, uh, than what I had. Uh, and, you know, frankly, part of the reason why I'm so passionate about the methane issue is because with the ability to reduce methane, we really do, in fact, have it within our control, your control, my control, the people who are listening to this podcast, we really do have it in our hands to actually slow temperature increase in our lifetime and in my kid's lifetime. And, you know, God forbid we don't take advantage of that opportunity, right? Uh, we're doing them an incredible disservice. And, and, and if we don't do it, we're also feeding that cynicism that I think is really kind of heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, I think that's a an excellent way to end a call to action, something that you and I and our listeners have in common, which is our, our obligation and our opportunity to make meaningful change in our lifetime. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Tisha, always great to talk with you. That's our episode for today. Thank you to Mark Brownstein for taking the time to share his perspectives and insights with us. And the the really, there are so many game-changing insights for me, but one was the way he described uh, curiosity, intellectual curiosity as a quality of a key environmental leader, because that has certainly been a recurring theme uh, from show to show of an important uh, quality for us to cultivate as leaders in this moment. I'd like to know what you found interesting, insightful, controversial. So please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and you can check out more about our work at energythinks.com. I'd like to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.